0: Welcome to the Engage and Equip podcast. This is a resource designed to help form substantive disciples for the local church. We recently put on a conference at High Point Church called Sexuality Everywhere. We were looking at the question, how can we glorify Jesus as sexual beings? This is the first main session of the Sexuality Everywhere conference where Adam Mabry is going to be talking about the story of sex and how sex is interwoven into the greater story of how God is working in creation. Thanks for listening.
1: Everybody, good evening. You have to talk back a little bit more. Good evening. All right, it's great, to, great to be here with you guys. Uh, I am, in fact, uh, the pastor of Alathia Church. It's been a blast uh, to get to plants and to lead that congregation. But every time I get to come here to Madison and be a guest of Nick's, uh I have, um, I, I covet because our church meets in an old 95-year-old YMCA gymnasium, and this one doesn't. Um, and so. Uh, <clears throat> it's okay. It stirs up my faith <laughs> for what, uh, what what God could do. Um- uh, and the topic that we're talking about at this conference is one that I am constantly asked to address in, um, in my town. Uh, I, I bid you greetings from the People's Republic of Cambridge, Massachusetts, where our largest of our three congregations uh, is nestled between um, Harvard and MIT and saturated uh, in, a, in a cultural milieu which is um, very much opposed to the story of Jesus and very much opposed to the ethics uh, contained in the scriptures. And so uh, the task before us at this conference is is great. Uh, some of you are here because you are Christians. You've been Christians for a very long time, perhaps even your whole life. And so, what you're here to hear about is someone prove forcefully that everyone else who disagrees with Christian se- sexual ethics is, is wrong, perhaps. And, and others of you are here um, because you're you're maybe new to Christianity, and you're you're. Y- y- you want to do what the Bible says, but it doesn't make a ton of sense to you. I mean, you're willing to go along with it, but if push came to shove and someone asked you to defend the sexual ethics contained in the scriptures, you might go, ah, it's what everyone says I'm supposed to do. And, and others of you, may, maybe some of you are here, and for you, the idea or the, the topic of sex and sexuality is one wrought with um, pain. Um difficulty, maybe even profound disagreement with the church and the people of God. Because for many, the topic of sex and sexuality has been one over which we've shed tears, even in buildings like this. And we felt ostracized sometimes from the people of God and from buildings like this. And so what I hope happens over our time together is not that we're here to to prove our side right, and win the great culture war, nor to shift biblical sexual ethics because they're not going anywhere. But rather, as we re-engage the biblical story, our hearts and our minds and even our actions would be reinvigorated, not by a desire for us to become more fully who we are, but become more fully who Jesus teaches us we are to be. And so with that, as a bit of an introduction, we're going to go to the scriptures because it seems like an appropriate thing to do. Um, And therein we find the words of life as we begin um, this particular session uh, called The Story of Sex. And so to guide our conversation, we're going to be in the very beginning and the very end of the Bible. Genesis 2 and then Revelation chapter 19. Join me if you will in Genesis 2. We'll read from verse 15 to 25. The word of the Lord says, The Lord God took the man and put him in the Garden of Eden to work it and keep it. And the Lord God commanded the man, saying, You may surely eat of every tree of the garden, but of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil you shall not eat, for in the day that you eat of it, you shall surely die. And then the Lord God said, It's not good that the man should be alone. I will make And while he slept, he took one of his ribs and closed up its place with flesh. And the rib that the Lord God had taken from the man, he made into a woman and he brought her to the man. And then the man said, at last, this is bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. She shall be called woman for she was taken out of man. Therefore, a man shall leave his father and his mother and hold fast to his wife and they shall become one flesh And the man and his wife were both naked and not ashamed. Now, moving to the next text. The book of Revelation says the following. Then I heard what seemed to be the voice of a great multitude, like the roar of many waters, like the sound of mighty peals of thunder, crying out, Hallelujah, for the Lord our God, the Almighty reigns. Thanks be to God. Will you pray with me? Father, as we come and approach this topic about which there's so much anxiety in our culture, would you give us peace? Where there's so much rage and fighting outside these walls, would you give us shalom? Where there's confusion, would you give us clarity? God, where there's disagreement, would you cause us all to bow the knee to King Jesus, to have our minds transformed, as the apostle says? To have our hearts reawakened and reinvigorated by the power of the Spirit and help us to see how your story, the story of God, and only your story can make sense of the story of human sexuality. In Jesus' name I pray, amen. So first we should begin by way of confession. I am a giant level 10 nerd about at least three things. One is music. Uh, classical music, to be precise, which is a sermon for a different time. Um, I have a music degree, which is good for decorating my wall. Um, and so if any of you are pursuing music degrees, <laughs> um, <laughs> uh, the second is, is the Bible. I, I'm, a, I'm a big Bible nerd. Uh, but the third is uh, the Lord of the Rings, um, because I'm a Christian, and... <laughs> So if you're not about it, that's okay. This is a place of repentance and life change and we can help you. Um, One of the things that I I really, really like about the Lord of the Rings is that uh, unlike the work of C.S. Lewis, Tolkien's work, takes, um, it, it's a little bit more layered, a little bit more multifaceted. There's not this one-to-one correlation with, oh, that's the Jesus figure, oh, that's the Judas figure, right? It's a little bit more layered. Um, and and one of the things that happens, particularly in, in the three books of the Lord of the Rings, that if you go through the story, there are, there are two perspectives that almost every character, particularly in the Fellowship of the Rings, but all of them eventually, there's two perspectives to choose from. One is the perspective of our man Gandalf up here. Uh, Gandalf's seems, no matter what's going on, to be fairly unflappable and to always know the right way to view events, even if the event is a giant fire monster throwing him into the depths of the earth. He's cool about it, somehow manages to maintain a right perspective. Now, the, the other perspective, which is constantly tempting and constantly drawing the character in a way from this perspective, is the perspective of the ring itself. This ring is beautiful, it's powerful, and any of its bearers have within their grasp all of their worst desires cast in the best possible light. And so if you're rolling with Gandalf, then you see that these events, even though they're difficult and even though the road to healing Middle-earth is, is like long and difficult and involves some really, really challenging stuff, it, it's worth it because of what's promised on the other side. But if, on the other hand, you've got the perspective of the ring or someone like it, you end up like, you know, Gollum. And eventually... The irony of the book is that that he ends up being destroyed as he gets the very thing he wants. The ring itself. And and so, similarly, in our current cultural moment, when we come to consider sex and sexuality, there are two perspectives. One being the perspective of the scriptures, and the other being the perspective prevalent right now in most Western civilized democracies uh, that, that... kind of follow our cultural lead. And, and the perspective is this, that if you'll just, if we'll just move a little bit off of that old, regressive, knuckle-dragging, sort of ancient, you know, oppressing sexual ethic contained in the scriptures or, or that's religious, then you'll really be free, then you'll really get to have your best life, then you can become who you truly are, and then you'll be happy. Now initially, doesn't that sound good? Like, I mean, if, if we just kind of did a quick survey, like, given the choice between being happy or not happy, most of us would go, um, A. Fair? And so, it, it's in the light of, of the story of, that's been woven over particularly the last 50 years aggressively, but the last 500 in Western civilization. It, it's in the light of that story that increasingly the Bible's sexual ethics make less and less sense. Like when you read that marriage is meant to be this covenantal union between one man and one woman for the entirety of their lives, and that sexual expression is meant to find its home and, and beautified place r- right in there to secure and, and anchor that, that increasingly sounds absolutely ancient, ridiculous, and oppressive even. But but in a moment where we understand, you know, more and more that, that humans are really no different than animals. We're just higher orders of life form, which are merely lucky stardust that happen to collocate over the last few ages to create us. But we won't be us for very long before entropy catches up with us. So we should live our best life right now and express who we are right now and discover what makes us happy right now and reach out and grasp it. Then we are tantalizingly close to what seems like happiness but what will end up destroying us. Like reaching out for the ring. It seems, ah, this could make sense of it all. And it doesn't. We end up finding ourselves increasingly in a culture that is confused about sexuality that says on the one hand, live your truth, be who you wanna be, find out what feels good sexually and just express that as long as it's within the current prevalent cultural narrative and you agree with everything that we say, in which case if you do not, you're aggressive, backwards, knuckle-dragging bigot and we hate you and you shouldn't do that. That says on the one hand sex is unimaginably important. It's the central, you know, piece to who you are. That if you don't express it, if you don't have a lot of it and have increasingly higher degrees of pleasure in it, then you're not living a fully human life. But man, those people over in the church, they just make such a big deal about sex and it's not a big deal at all. That that gender, gender is, is whatever you gender is a spectrum of different expressions that's mostly culturally conditioned, and, and all of us find ourselves somewhere along the expression, but at the same time you can find yourself being in one gender and wanting to be the other. It can't be both and. We are confused. And in our confusion, we increasingly dial up the vitriol with which we hold our confused position all the while not knowing fully why. And so what I want to do with you this evening is to convince you that the story of the scriptures are, are the interpretive grid by which we make sense of sex and sexuality. That if we start with just the do's and don'ts of the Bible, then we're, we're, we're missing it. What we've got to do more and more if we're going to be the people of God is to see that we must be story-shaped People, Because right now, we're living in a world that has utterly rejected the Christian sexual ethic. Like, just, just swallow that pill if you haven't. There is no going back to some time, you know, and, and making sexuality great again. That's not going to happen, okay? We're not going to reach back to the leave it to beaver days and every, you know, we're just, we're just a couple of generations back. We're just going to go back. There's no going backwards, But at the same time, we can't uh, keep going forward to the thing that everyone says we need to keep going toward because as we do, we will be increasingly more destroyed. One of the most socially and mentally and governmentally and economically destructive things to happen in Western civilization in the last hundred years is the sexual revolution of the late 1960s, which has caused us to spend more money, love each other less, Break down families and be more and more impoverished, both economically and morally, than we have in a long, long time. It's not working. So if we come at the world with, listen, stop doing that. No, 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 don't touch that. Don't, don't say that. Don't go there with those. Don't, don't do that. That's not enough anymore. We must be story-shaped, okay? The the story about sex, if if we're going to live it outright, we've got to let the story in the scriptures about sex expose the lies we believe and the glory of that story offer us the way back. One author in his sociological work Alistair McIntyre wrote it this, listen, man in his actions and practice as well as as in his fictions is essentially a storytelling animal. I can only answer the question, what am I to do, if I can first answer the prior question of what story or stories do I find myself a part? But for all intents and purposes, many of us who name the name of Jesus act Monday through Saturday, not as Christians, but as practical atheists. We come to church and we get saved. We have a personal relationship with God and we put our religion in the nice Sunday morning, Wednesday night, small group Bible study, like in those particular boxes because that's where Jesus goes. The call of God tonight, my friends, is not to be less Christian and more sexually free, but to be more and more Christian and understand the gift of sexuality in light of the story of scripture. Does it make sense? So that's where we're going this evening. The story about sex must expose the lies that we believe, but the glory of the story about sex is what offers us the way back. So we're going to break that big idea down into three chunks. The story about sex, before it can expose anything, we have to understand it. So we must see in the beginning that sex, like all things, was made good. And Genesis 1, for whatever else Genesis 1 is there to tell us, it's there to tell us that God's original creation was great, y'all. It's great. It repeats itself seven times to tell us that in the beginning, this was good, that was good, this was good, this, and at the very end, this was very good. Listen, if your mom or your dad or your pastor repeats himself to you, it's because he wants you to pay attention. When God Almighty repeats himself seven times in the Word of God, it is going, hey, 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 pay attention. This stuff was really, really good, including gender, including marriage, including sexuality. It was made good to be part of this thing called the good. Sex was created for God's glory. It's not as though God made sex um, and made gender and then was surprised that it was sort of awesome. Like, that he, he brought Adam and Eve together and was like, Do you, you do, do you, do, you, are great, you're married, I'm going to go make a sandwich. Oh, and then he comes back and goes, Hey! You know, he didn't, you know... That's not, but sometimes the way we approach Christian, you know, we can talk about sexuality as if, you know, like, uh, you know, it's sex. It's sort of this accidental, slightly awesome thing. God didn't intend, but you know, whatever. Just, you know, don't, just let's not talk about it. (laughs) Just kind of the way the church treated sex and sexuality from the late 19 whatever's to very recently. Just didn't talk much about it. And in that vacuum, our culture did a lot of talking about it. So we've got to see, like, with un abashed clarity that God made sex and sexuality good for his glory for our flourishing human sexuality was created not just as an individual good as well but part of this larger good framework in which God set everything in the universe this is important to understand because this means that sexuality is neither inconsequential nor overly important It's not a throwaway, like, side effect of the universe that, like, those collocations of random atoms over eons happen to develop sexual organs that happen to also bundle nerve endings that happen to also feel great. Like, no, it's not unimportant. But neither is it of, like, cosmic importance such that you're not human if you don't experience it. He just made it part of a good framework. Now, now, this is extremely important because that means that it has a purpose. And if sex and sexuality has, by God, a designed purpose, then we're already well on the way of understanding the ethics behind it. And what we're going to see, my friends, is that its purpose is much, much, much bigger and better than perhaps what we thought. One uh, scholar, uh, Richard Davidson, in his work, The Flame of Yahweh, writes that sexuality, including the act of sexual intercourse, is part of God's good creation, crowning, uh, the act of creating humans. God's creation is a very beautiful, very good. Therefore, uh, declares the first chapter of Genesis, sex is good and beautiful. Yes, very beautiful and good. It's not a mistake, a, not an aberration, not a regrettable necessity or a shameful experience, as it has so often been, been regarded in the history of the Christian church and in the history of pagan thought. Shameless sexuality was divinely ordered, shameful sexuality is the result of sin. According to God's original design, sexuality is wholesome, beautiful, and good. It's meant to be experienced between spouses without fear, without inhibitions, without shame, and without embarrassment. This is so important for us to understand. Sexuality was made as part of the good, and it was made to feel good. Now, some of you are like, I did not need a Bible to know that. Okay. Okay, I I understand that, but, but we have to say this, because part of the lie or, or the, uh, you know, Christian street cred on sexuality is that, like, we don't celebrate somehow these things that God made that, that, are, that are wonderful. But, but we should. I mean, one can argue that one of our 66 divinely inspired books in that little leather bound library you carry around called your Bible is all about celebrating the goodness of a sexually intimate wonderful relationship between a husband and wife and I'm not talking about the book of Jeremiah everybody I'm talking about song uh, song of songs if it feels like for you the book of Jeremiah I'm glad you're here we'll pray for you at the end C.S. Lewis wrote in Mere Christianity modern people are always saying sex is nothing to be ashamed of yet Christianity says the same It is not the thing nor the pleasure of sex that is the trouble. The old Christian teacher said that if man had never fallen, sexual pleasure, instead of being less than it is now, would actually have been greater. I know some muddle headed Christians have talked as if Christianity thought that sex or the body or pleasure were bad in themselves, but they are wrong. Christianity is almost the only one of the great religions which thoroughly approves of the human body, which believes that matter is good, that God himself once took on a human body, that some kind of body is going to be given to us in heaven and is going to be an essential part of our happiness, our beauty, and our energy. Christianity has glorified marriage more than any other religion, and nearly all the greatest love poetry in the world has been produced by Christians. If anyone says that sex in itself is bad, Christianity contradicts him at once. Don't believe me? Believe C.S. Lewis it's part of the good it's meant to feel good and it's meant to be good for the glory of god like i mean if you can imagine this like god oversaw and approves of this act in humanity before the fall human sexuality it's not an end in itself It's not what we were created for. Now, this is extremely important because part of what the the lie that's told outside these walls and outside the Christian church is that sexuality is somehow your most base level identity root such that who you are attracted to or how you like to find yourself approaching orgasm is somehow the thing that defines who and what you are. My friends, you are so much more majestic than that. And part of what we need to carry out of this conference is the good news that humans are amazing. Humans are amazing, multifaceted image bearers. And so when someone comes to you and says that they are most essentially defined by their sexuality or gender identity or sexual expression, you should hear them not to correct them with anger, but with compassion, knowing you have flattened out and diminished so much of what you are. We're not here to squish you. We are here to liberate you. Sexuality is meant to be good. Herman Bavink in his Page-Turner, Dogmatic Theology. <clears throat> I know, you probably all read it on your way here, but I'll quote it just in case you didn't. <laughs> Writes this, Now the confession of the Trinity we hear, uh, in the confession of the Trinity we hear the heartbeat of the Christian religion. A Christian's confession is not an island in the ocean, but a high mountaintop from which the whole creation can be surveyed. It is the task of Christians to present clearly the connectedness of God's revelation with and its significance for all of life. The Christian mind remains unsatisfied until all of existence is referred back to the triune God and until the confession of God's trinity functions as the center for our thought and life. If God is indeed triune, it has to be supremely important for all things, according to the apostle, are from him and through him and to him and for him. My friends, part of what we have to do as Christians is not learn to think less about sex, but learn to think more and how to root it back to our story. Because again, my big point to you tonight is that the story of Christianity is what exposes the lies and renews our sexuality. Our sexuality. Finally, sex is given to protect the good. Like all things, the story of sex teaches us in the scriptures that sex is not destructive in the church, but actually building and protective. It's designed to protect marriages. It's designed to protect families. It's designed to produce something, namely children. It has a function. It's a good function. Sex finds its definition not apart from or antecedent to or somehow unconnected from the Christian story. My friends, it must be connected to our story. And so the degree to which we don't do that is the degree to which we neither understand it ourselves nor serve anyone outside these walls. We must see the connection. But as we see the connections, we, we get shown how wrong we are. Now, I know all of you love that and our cultures in a moment that's very open to correction, um, especially from Christians, especially from white male Christians. We're super popular right now. Um, yeah, perhaps you've heard. Um, and so I want you to hear this because some of you are, are in flux right now. You're here because, not because you agree with the biblical sexual ethic, but there's something in you that very much wants to disagree. And so I I want you to know that as we go through some of these lies that must be exposed, I I don't do this with great pleasure. I don't correct with great pleasure, but but through a a broken heart and hopefully transmit to you the, the, the heart of God. But we must see that at the center of Christianity is a cross. Jesus, arms open wide, says, Father, forgive them for they don't know what they're doing. The cross itself is a cosmic act of disagreement and correction. So we shouldn't be surprised that part of what we understand about sex and sexuality is broken. And so let's talk about some of that. Our current cultural moment values sexual feelings and intuitions primarily as goods in themselves. So as we've said, the story about sex must expose the lies we believe. So here are some of them. The first is that somehow your sexual feelings are, as I mentioned, essentially part of who you are. That seems axiomatically true. Do, do you know this phrase? If, if something is axiomatically true, then, then you say it and, it, and it's true on its face. And some of those confessions that we have right now come out of the mouth of our, of our greatest cultural prophets and prophetesses, but I think um, the, the greatest confession comes from um, Her Majesty Queen Oprah, uh, peace be upon her, um, who says, I actually have a lot of respect for her. I don't mean to throw her under the bus, but this particular axiom, which she says as a rule for her life, and we all embrace as Americans, is fundamentally anti-Christian. It's whatever you do, live your truth. Whatever you do, live your truth. The serpent slithered up to Eve and said, did God really say? And then Eve reasoned with her own heart that the fruit was beautiful and look delicious, and desirous to make one wise. The very end of the book of Judges indicts the people of God by saying, there was no king in Israel, and everyone did what was right in their own eyes. With all respect to Oprah and every other current cultural prophet of this false gospel, living your truth is some of the worst advice anyone can ever be given. Our current cultural moment, though, elevates you as the primary authority over all things. We live in a moment where our religion as Americans is not a vague form of nationalized Christianity. It is a totally non-Christian religion called expressive individualism that says you were lucky stardust that happens to be here from no reason, by no cause unto no purpose. So you need to extract over the next 8 to 9, maybe 10 decades with organic eating and a lot of yoga, your best possible, most pleasuring life. And the problem with the world is people like me with face mics and Bibles who tell you how to live and try to squish you. So you need to find out who you are inside and do this thing called self-actualization. To live out from your inside who you really are to the outside world, no matter the cost Whatever you do, live your truth. If I said that whilst receiving an Oscar or a Grammy, I would be lauded and have a wonderful, wonderful write-up in the newspaper the following day. If I preached that as a Christian pastor, I would sell a lot more books than I currently do. But live your truth is a catechism of a false religion. So, Knowing that, that that's what we believe in our current cultural moment, we have to see that that, that has roots in a different story. That, that is, we don't have time right now, I'll talk a little bit about this tomorrow in one of my breakout sessions, but we, the the trajectory by which Western civilization has arrived at this axiomatic truth is what informs everyone's sexual decisions right now. Because if you come to me and tell me that you are attracted to members of the opposite gender or the same gender or both genders or you're not attracted to any gender or you're attracted to, you know, some other kind of thing, according to Wikipedia, when I checked this morning, there are 52 permutations of human sexuality, which seems like a lot. (laughs) My, My highest ethical response to you in the current story is to accept you. With no judgment. If I were ever to offer a corrective to say this is not what God has intended, then I am not only, according to the outside story, wrong. I'm dehumanizing you. Do you see what's at stake here? So having been through the biblical story of what sexuality is, we must expose what it is not. It is not an empty cipher to fill with your own meaning. The theological roots of this this are clear. We read the Genesis passage that in the beginning, God creates, he blesses creation. Humans walk with God, humans are worshiping God. God creates sex for marriage between a man and a woman. He protects humanity and all of this results in God's abundant goodness and blessing. By the time you get to the New Testament, the Apostle Paul in the very first chapter of Romans writes for us humans' decreation or uncreation story which perfectly mirrors the tearing down of the Genesis text. I have it in a chart right here because I have A great, great love for charts. In Genesis, God creates, but in Romans, man decreates. In Genesis, God blesses creation, but in Romans, it's cursed under sin. In Genesis, humans are walking with God, ruling creation. In Romans, humans exchange God for creation and end up being ruled by it. In Genesis, humans worship God, but in Romans, we, we are worshiping God's things. In Genesis, God creates sex for marriage between a man and a woman, but in Romans, we've decreated sex for men and men or women and women. The result is, in Genesis, that God protects and blesses humanity, but in Romans, God lets us do what we want, and that brings about sexual and moral depravity, rejection, pain, my friends. This is what happens when we live our truth. This is extremely important. Sexual desires do not equate ontology, our our meaning, or ourselves, but in the decreation story, that's what we make them into. Because we've rejected God's definition of who we are, we have the next most powerful thing to reach for, which for many of us is our sexual desires. Because biologically, emotionally, and even mentally, those things are real, they're raw, and they come raging in into your life, and they rule us until something else rules us. This is incredibly significant. If my sexual feelings are who I am at my core, then they must be fulfilled in order for me to even feel complete and whole. My sense of fulfillment is cast upon my sexual fortunes and everything must depend on it. But being a Christian gives me a different perspective. My sexual desires are not insignificant. They're deeply personal, but they are not defining or central. And so fulfilling them is not the key to fullness in life. But our culture's near hysterical insistence that sexuality is identity has far more to do with the prevalence of torment, self-loathing, and destruction that comes from rejecting God than the liberation that's offered supposedly from doing the same. This means that instead of sex being part of the good, sex is no longer part of any good. Sex is inconsequential according to the current cultural moment. Sex should just feel good merely feeling good, not, not being about like the connection of two human souls, but simply there to bring you to some sort of physical orgasmic sensation, release some endorphins in your head so that you can focus on your work better the next day, perhaps. Sex is not to be good. Sex is now just a thing. It's neither good or bad. According to Adam Levine, that great uh, prophet from The Voice, we're just <laughs> Animals. This leads to a reductionistic morality, where there are two morals. Tolerate everything and only have sex with those with whom you derive consent from. Now, of course, we believe in consent, but this has reduced the ethics of sexuality to an unmanageable low. Because we can't tolerate everything, especially the intolerance of our own practices. Sexual freedom we're told contributes to the good, but nothing could be further from the truth. As I said earlier, since the unmooring of sex to the structure of marriage or the story of God, horrible, horrible pain and depravity has been unleashed. What I find most difficult about our current cultural moment that says, listen, just do what you want with your body. And our current cultural moment that's angry at at particularly white men like me for abusing their power is that they're exactly right for exactly the wrong reasons. I live and work next to Harvard University. I I speak there a lot. We've got professors and students um, in my church there. And around the time leading up to the sexual revolution, it was white dudes at that school particularly who came up with really good academic-sounding reasons to just take sexual practice away from the moorings of ethics, of the Christian religion particularly and released into culture what we now understand to be the sexual revolution. All in the name of, it's going to make society a better place. And since doing that, the people most affected negatively by the outcomes of the sexual revolution are people who aren't white middle class men like me, but those who are living at the margins of society. My black and brown brothers and sisters who have less opportunity and less access to those very halls of power, who've been absolutely devastated by the fatherlessness and sexual immorality that people like me, 50 years ago, foisted upon them. We say sexual freedom and liberation is going to lead to social good. Nothing could be further from the truth. So what are we going to do? Well, thankfully, this sermon doesn't end here. That would be a bummer way to start a conference. (laughs) So, you know, y'all even think about that. uh, The amazing thing about the biblical story of human sexuality is not only that it teaches us what sex is for and exposes the lies we've believed about sex, but offers us the only hope for finding our way back. Finding our way into sexual freedom and fulfillment and into societal wholeness and and rejuvenation and shalom and all those things that we all want isn't by merely moving forward toward whatever is labeled progress, my friends, but by moving deeper, higher into the biblical sexual ethic. We can't go back to the garden, we can't recuperate what was lost, we can't close Pandora's box and we can't make sexuality great again. The way back isn't a way backwards. It's a way toward God, a way forward. So, let's spend the remainder of our time thinking about it. First, we have to see that the Bible begins and ends with a wedding. Did did you catch that in those those two texts that I read to you? That God invents... Humanity and invents gender and invents human sexuality and presides over the first wedding between Adam and Eve, our parents, which gives rise to literally every human civilization, culture, and cultural good. And and God's enemy very quickly sneaks into the garden and says, listen, this is really cool, but it's going to be even better if you own it and you define it and you allow yourselves to get away from God because he's holding out on you and you discover your truth for yourself and define sexuality and define gender and define relationships as best as you possibly can. And that goes awesome, doesn't it? No, it doesn't, because two chapters later, we get the first dude who's married multiple women, he's abusive, he's violent, he's terrible, and he drags around ladies like property. No. So what does God do? God ends the story of the scriptures in the bigger, more beautiful version of the way they began with The people of God having been redeemed and washed by Jesus, Jesus having come and lived faithfully where Adam and Eve failed and dying where we deserve to die and rising, conquering Satan, sin, death, demons, brokenness, hell, and the grave where we would be conquered by them offers those of us who've trusted in him not only a way to be saved and not only a way back into relationship with God and not only a way to heaven forever but a way to be a part of bringing heaven to earth because that's the future, my friends. We're not going to leave here. Jesus didn't teach us to pray our Father in heaven, get thy people gone, but thy kingdom come. A friend of mine writing a book on this wrote, the most careful reader can easily miss the tantalizing fact that the Bible both begins and ends with weddings that turn out to occupy surprisingly central positions amidst vastly larger cosmic backdrops. In Genesis and Revelation, both the initial creation and the concluding recreation of the entire universe by God serve the literary function of magnifying the awesome meaning that is ascribed to these two particular marriage scenes, marriages that turn out to be climactic finales to everything else God does at both the inception of and the end of human history. This canonical inclusio, which bookends the Bible, is not a coincidence, but holds a divinely intended significance for how we read and interpret all the material that lay in between these two dramatic moments. That means that sexual morality is not about itself. It's about living in light of the story found in the gospel. That means that me being faithful to my wife with my body is not just about having a good marriage or being a good Christian. It's about embodying the story of the universe of redemption and of recreation. And as one of God's recreated beings, I get to live that story out. Not just say it with my mouth, but live it as a parable in my house, with my body, with my wife. That means that when you who are single in this moment. Say no to sexual temptation. You're not just avoiding sin as if to stay on this side of some imaginary line. You're avoiding sin so that your life can echo the story of God so that others might hear and see and believe the best news possible through your life. What you do is so much louder than what you say. No one gives a rip about your Twitter Christian activism or your Instagrammed Bible studies or your Facebook morality. The algorithms of all of those institutions make sure that your gospel-centered life never sees the light of day in front of a non-Christian, okay? But the people that you live next to, they've never seen a faithful marriage. They've never seen a husband satisfied with his wife and a wife satisfied with her husband They've never seen children that don't have to struggle in the same way as everyone else because there's a story that's wrapped around that both guides their sexual ethics and forgives them when they fail. That's what's so amazing about Jesus, everybody. I mean, Jesus not only embodies what it means to be perfectly human, but because he's so amazing, he doesn't judge us and send us to hell for failing him. Rather, he offers us mercy when we do if we trust him. It's amazing. That's that's why I show up to buildings like this and sing songs to him because he's not sitting on high giving me a list of do's and don'ts, where to touch, not to do, do, say, that, don't go across. Not that, but rather showing me how to live and giving me grace when I don't. He's worth living this way for. Sexual morality is not about itself. It's about God and the God of the gospel. The authors of Scripture all universally saw the centrality of the story of God as the starting point, not just for sexual ethics, but for all ethics. And so for the next couple of days, as we unpack the do's and don'ts of sexual ethics, listen, it's not the arbitrary choices of certain Christians giving you their best tips and tricks. It's the outcome of the study of the story of the Bible which makes sense of all of these things. Genesis 1-2 to shows us the givenness of sexual order, of gender, the declaration from God that these are good things. Science understands that nature has order, right? Like when you, I mean, third grade science, everybody. Like, you know, kingdom, phylum, order, class, genus, species, remember all that stuff? Like no one's going, okay, let's group elephants with amoebas. That seems good. They both start with vowels, right? (laughs) Like we understand, like science has an order to things, and yet we reject the idea that metaphysics has an order or that ethics has an order. But if the natural world has an order, it's not terribly unreasonable to think that our ethical and metaphysical world does too. Sexuality permeates one's individual being to its very depths, its conditions, or rather it conditions, every facet of one's life as a person. As the self is always aware of itself as an I, so this I is always aware of itself as a him or a her. Our self-knowledge is indissolubly bound, not simply with our human being, but with our sexual being. Genesis tells us that this is a good thing ephesians five thirty one thirty two says the whole thing about marriage is not even about marriage itself, but it's to illustrate the nature of God as Father, Son, and spirit. The father loving the son, the son loving the father, and the spirit existing as the love between them is meant to be imaged forth in our marriages so that my relationship with my wife is not even about me and her, not even about our kids, not even about holding society together. It's about echoing God. That was God's intention in creating it. It's not like God created it and he went, oh, this is a good, I should use this as an analogy later. <laughs> this kind of worked out. No, no. This is the way to understand everything. The story of God interprets everything, my friends. Such that by the time we get to the end of the canon, we get to the end of the story of God. There's a great wedding feast. The bride adorned for her husband, who's been faithful where we have been unfaithful. Yet the love that he has poured out on us in the, Blood of his body and the spirit sent from his father and himself is what has washed us and cleansed us and brought us back into union with him. And so you and I, we have a choice this evening. The choice is: how are we going to interpret these events? How are we going to interpret our bodies and our gender and our sexuality in our current cultural moment? Are we going to do the Gandalf thing or the Ring thing? Are we going to trust the being who's come from another place, Jesus, who gives insight and, and wise counsel and oversight and interpretation to even our darkest moments, promising to bring us through them? Or shall we grasp to empower ourselves and take ourselves to places that our deepest, darkest desires want to go, even if it means excluding other humans from their highest joy. You have a choice. I have a choice. We can believe this story or we cannot, and we can interpret the world from the story that we get outside of these walls. My prayer is that you will come to see that the story of God and the story of God about sex exposes the lies we believe but also it is the glory of the story that offers us the way back for some of you that means a renewal of your mind you need to repent of some bad thinking You need to begin to allow yourself to be saturated in the story of this Bible so that you can understand yourself and understand others, not through merely conservative or progressive politics or a scientistic way of looking at the world or merely self-reflective, but listening to God and having your mind reshaped after his mind. For others of you, it means being renewed in your emotions, To refresh yourself in the news of the gospel and the story of God. That if you've been faithful, there's Jesus saying, well done. And if you've been unfaithful, there's Jesus saying, I forgive you and I welcome you home and I can help you. And for all of us, it means a renewal of our actions to live this story out because it is the story of the scriptures which are the hope of the world. Our embodied sexuality and living it out faithfully is not about us merely in being a pure church and being holy and being kind. Can you imagine what the world would begin to believe about God if the people of God, the two billion of us that say we worship the resurrected Jesus, begin to live out in our bodies and in our marriages and in our sexuality the story of God and not merely the story of this current cultural moment Oh, how beautiful that would be and how helpful that would be to the world and to ourselves so I'm going to pray for us and as I pray I just want to invite you like what, what needs to change for you what thoughts do you need to stop thinking what feelings do you know are not God's feelings about you And what actions need to shift? Let's pray. Holy Spirit, you love these men and women. All of us come to you bearing the image of God. And all of us come to you shattered with disordered sexuality and disordered minds and disordered hearts. We thank you that Jesus in his life and in his death and his resurrection doesn't merely give us rules to live by, but power to change. And so I pray for my friends in here tonight that you would help us to change where we've been bigoted and judgmental mental help us to change where we've been proud and arrogant help us to change where we have been unholy and unrighteous help us to change where we have been quiet where we should have spoken help us to change we love you and we trust you amen thank you
0: Thanks for listening to this episode of the Engage and Equip podcast. If you'd like to find more episodes, you can go online to highpointchurch.org slash podcast. You can also find us online on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Overcast, and other apps like that. We hope this episode was helpful to you as you grow in becoming a substantive disciple and a part of the local church. If this episode was helpful to you, rate or review us on Apple Podcasts or otherwise share this episode with a friend. Those are some of the best ways that we have to reach new listeners. So until next time, thanks for listening to this episode of Engage and Equip.